I'll remain standing. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you again for a beautiful morning. Thank you for good fr Christian fellowship. Thank you for the opportunity to pray together, to study together. As we enter upon this morning devotional, Lord, we, we pray that that spirit of worship that was begun in the singing will continue, that you will be present here, that we will experience anew the joy of your love as it is shed abroad in our hearts. And now be, be with us as we consider your plan for marriage. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. I must say I feel a little more awake this morning. Uh, yesterday I, I felt like I was sleepwalking, but uh, some of you seemed like you felt that way too. <laughs> So I, I hope we've all had a little more sleep, although I know if you're living in, in a dormitory kind of situations that that can be more challenging, but I'm glad we're here this morning. This morning what we're dealing with is marriage. Now you say, this is for young people. Why would we be dealing with marriage? Because it is my sincere prayer that one day those of you who are not married will indeed get married. Unless God has given you the gift of celibacy, and uh, most people do not claim that gift. And so I, I feel that God has a plan for marriage. And often when we get to youth retreats, we talk about dating. But we skip a very important aspect, and that is what is marriage all about? Because eventually when you finish dating, what do you hope to have? Marriage. That's right. So marriage is what we're going to be dealing with this morning, and the fall laws of marriage. We're going to begin in Genesis 1 verse 27. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. And notice God's original plan. And, and I'm going to, this is kind of a preliminary to the fall laws, but it's foundational. Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now, it's very interesting. It begins with, yes, God makes a man. And then he goes on and he makes male and female. And in case you haven't noticed, man and woman are different. Have you, have you noticed that? We think differently. We act differently. And I once dated a young lady who uh, was very frustrated at the fact that I was not able to understand her. And she said, but I'm like an open book. To which the response was, yes, but I've no idea which page you're on. <laughs> so I needed an index to be able to read that book. Yes, man and woman are different. God created us differently, and yet we will see a plan. Some people have seen it this way. Man has one switch, woman have many. Now, of course, it's not quite that simple. Men are complicated too. Amen, ladies? But uh, there are differences. And I've spoken in the past, my wife has spoken about differences of being like waffles and spaghetti. Men are like waffles. You know, they have little boxes, and they work in little boxes. Here's my play box, here's my work box, here's my relationship box, and here's my nothing box. And, <laughs> and we have these little boxes that we have, and, and the boxes, you know, you, when you're working in that box, that's the only place you're working. So when you're dealing with something, that's what you do. And, and a woman can speak to you. My wife can call me up at work. And, and I'm like, yes, honey, what do you want? And then I have to realize, no, she's a woman. Everything is connected in her life, much like spaghetti. 
She doesn't have separate boxes. Have you ever tried to follow a piece of spaghetti all the way through a plate of spaghetti? Have you ever tried that? It doesn't work because every piece of spaghetti touches every other piece of spaghetti. And so men and women, God created us differently because a woman's brain is hardwired to be very interconnected. Everything is connected to everything else, right? I mean, the, the what's happening at work is connected to what's happening at home. What's happening at home is what's happening in your spiritual life. And that's what's happening with Jane. And that's what's happening with Mary. And it's all interconnected. And, and the emotions connect all these different things. And, and it's like this buzzing network of wires. And, and a man, he's in his box. <laughs> and he has the box that he operates in. And so we, we're different. And God has created us differently for a purpose. Amen? So he can put the two together because it says, in the image of God, he created them. Both of us reflect God's image in different ways. And so sometimes people are a little afraid. How can you not have, you know, why are you saying that men have to be this way and women have to be this way? No, I understand. We're all different. We all operate in different ways. But God has created us to be uniquely male and female. Can you say amen? amen. Now, in a world of sin, it's messed up. <laughs> and in a world of sin, we don't know how to relate to our unique maleness and femaleness. And God wants to do something special with marriage. Now, I found Ellen White giving a marriage sermon. Isn't that a wonderful thing? To her granddaughter who was getting married. And notice what she says in her sermon to her granddaughter. You each have an identity of your own. Is that true? Yes. But in that identity, there must be a a unity. God wants to take different identities and blend them into a unity. There is constantly to be a development of the faculties that God has given you. That you may, notice what she says twice, improve, improve, and you may indeed be looked upon by the heavenly angels with commendation. You are called, you are not called up to give up your identity you each have an identity of your own. They may not always run in the same channel, and yet there may be the blending that God requires. Now, if you think about what she is saying about marriage, <laughs> if you think about her plan for marriage, you clearly see that God is wanting to not destroy your identity, but to blend it. Amen? So what is the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? Looking at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, looking at what Ellen White says in this sermon, what is the purpose of marriage? I am suggesting that the purpose of marriage is to blend two different personalities into the image of God. Amen? So to take two different personalities, two different sexes, and God created it that way, and to blend them together. Now, I'm going to contrast that with what is happening in today's world, because is the goal of marriage happiness or holiness? Is it happiness or holiness? I had a young lady in our house, and she, she was pleading with us, please, please, will you pray for me? And of course, we're always willing to pray. Please pray that I get a boyfriend. Everybody else has a boyfriend, and I don't have one. And we said, we will pray for you. We will pray that you become the right kind of girl to attract the right kind of guy. 
I don't want that kind of prayer. I just want a boyfriend. <laughs> so, so the problem was she believed that if she got a boyfriend, she would be happy. And happiness was her goal. If I just have a guy, I'll be happy. If I can just get married, I'll be happy. And they have shown statistically that you are about as happy after marriage as you were before it. So if you are happy before you're married, after you're married, you'll continue to be happy. They did find that if you were unhappy before you got married, you would actually be more unhappy after you got married. So that, that goes the other way. But the happiness quotient, if you're happy before married, you'll be happy after you're married. Marriage does not bring happiness. Did you get it? Wow. So that's what happens with a lot of couples. They get married, and then when they're married, what they're trying to do is to ask the question, how can I get the other person to meet my needs? So the guy is trying to get the girl to meet his needs, and the girl is trying to get the guy to meet her needs. You know, sometimes they joke, you know, uh, before a wedding, a wife-to-be believes that she can change her husband, and a husband-to-be believes that his wife will never change. <laughs> that she'll just remain as beautiful and as pretty on the day they got married, and she'll look exactly like that 50 years from now. <laughs> It's not going to work. Something has to change in the way we approach marriage. Modern marriage tends to be founded on feelings of attraction. So we get these little buzzes, the tingles. It assumes that there is the one other person out there who perfectly meets my needs, who perfectly understands me, and they're just going to be following me around. You know, what can I do for you today? How can I help you out? Oh, you're feeling tired? Yeah, let me massage your feet. Oh, you, let me get you something to drink. Oh, you're wanting to have Time in the bedroom? Sure. You know, we'll just go and do these things. This is the modern view of marriage. And they'll just sit down, ladies, and the guy will just sit there and listen to you sweetly. And he'll smile at you. Oh, really? Is there anything else I can do? Is that how you feel? Tell me about it. <laughs> the guy doesn't know how to do that. That's not how he's, he's interacted with other guys. Guys do not sit down together and go, yeah, tell me how you feel. How, what, what's that like for you? <laughs> no, guys sit down together. Oh, yeah, so, okay. Well, uh, we better get going and do something before you start getting all emotional on me. That's how guys... And so they don't know how to do that. So in marriage, you take these two different kinds of people and you put them together, and if they both come together with an essentially selfish motive that this person will make me happy, then the problem is that this Hollywood model of meeting the romantic one is going to lead them to manipulate each other to try and get that person to meet their needs. Marriage is not about happiness, but about what? Holiness. Now notice marriage books today. This is a Christian book, a popular Christian book called His Needs and Her Needs. And notice what they feel is the way to, to, to meet this problem. Uh, the author says, look, I can affair-proof your marriage. This is how to do it. Whether you've just started your life together, have had an average marriage for a number of years, have a bad marriage, or even have had an affair, you can build or rebuild your marriage if you learn to become aware of each other's needs and learn to meet them. In other words, his solution is what you need to do is just meet each other's needs. Can you ever fully meet your spouse's needs? No. no. 
the way to, to happiness is not by simply meeting each other's needs. It takes a divine element. It takes the Spirit of God to be in a marriage. And it takes a desire for holiness, not happiness. So ma modern marriage books don't admit the reality that God has planned. You see, God's plan for marriage is God wants to reflect to the universe His character of love and, and to show everyone, this is who I am. And that's why it takes two. God planned that there would be two people. Because if you only have one person, if it's just me, myself, and I, it's selfish. And so God planned for two people to reflect His character of love. The only two institutions that we have from Eden are what? Sabbath and marriage. These two institutions. And God gave them as vehicles of holiness. That's why the Sabbath, what is the plan for the Sabbath? That through the Sabbath it will be a sign that I am the Lord. You know it. Ezekiel 20 verse 12 and 20. I am the Lord who does what? Sanctifies you. It's a sign of sanctification. The Sabbath is also a sign of sanctification. It is a sign that God can take two different people and blend them together to show love to the whole universe. Can you say amen? That's his plan. And so Satan's plan is to pervert both institutions so that people ultimately become what? Selfish and reflect instead of the character of love, the character of the deceiver. We're all about what? Self. It's the I generation. Yesterday I talked about I worship. I guess we could have another phrase, I marriage. I'm getting married for me. It's not, it's not we marriage, it's I marriage. You know, and so uh, even you know, when you're planning a wedding, a woman goes through her mind, okay, what, what am I going to have to do? We're going we to, uh, let's see, stand, uh, you know, walk down the aisle, and then uh, stand at the altar, and then sing a hymn. I'll alter him. <laughs> All right, took you a while, took you a while. I'll alter him. That's the plan for marriage. I'm going to change him to be the way I want him to be. So instead, what we've suggested in marriage is that there are four laws that I want to give you whereby God can blend two different people to make them more like himself. Genesis chapter 2. Let's take a look at this. Genesis chapter 2. First, the foundation, and then the four laws. Genesis 2, verses 23 through 25. And the rib that the God, Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Right in here we find the foundation and the four laws of marriage. So let's take a look at it. What is God's plan? What is his foundational plan? First of all, marriage is based on an essential unity even though we're different. Isn't that what we've been saying? Notice Adam's reaction. He recognizes somebody that is different from him, but more importantly, that is essentially the same as him. His reaction, this at last. He's looked around, and there is no one else. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He recognizes a unity in spite of the diversity. Adam experiences an attraction that is based on that unity. And I believe that God's plan for two people is to be united as closely as possible in their desire to reflect God's image 
and for attraction to be based on that unity. Now today, attraction tends to be based on, what do we say? Opposites attract. So we tend to base it on the fact that we're different. You know? And so what happens is that we have superficial unity and essential difference, where we should have essential unity and more casual differences. Now, now let me explain. Essential unity is that you marry somebody who has the same faith as yourself. That's essential unity. Now, I've had people come in and tell me, you know, I, I love this person, and, and we get along so well together, and, and we even like the same colors, and we, we, like, we, like going, we like the same sports. It's incredible how much we like each other. We had a young couple in our home. They had been dating for, for six days, and they came over to our house, and we asked them, we said, so what is it like? And the guy said, you know, it's incredible. I, I, don't, I know exactly what she wants. I'm like, oh, wow. Well, you're like 20 years ahead of everyone else. So how do you know exactly what she wants? He says, I just think about what I would want, and it's exactly what she wants. <laughs> and I'm like, how long have you been dating again? Six days. That'll change. <laughs> no, the unity between us is the desire to reflect God's image to the world. The unity between us is when we're both committed to ministry. The unity between us is when we have similar values and beliefs. The unity between us is when you are, you are willing to die for your creator. That's the unity that binds us together. And then you can handle your differences. And there will be differences. So what are the four laws that are based on this foundation of unity? What are the four laws? The first law is what we would call the law of priority. Who is number one. Now we understand, of course, that God has to be number one in your life. Who is the creator who binds you together? It's, it's, it's God. It's a strand of three. It's not a strand of two. So we understand that. But beyond God, who is your priority? For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now the word leave is very interesting. It's the word azab. It means to leave or relinquish. It means to give up. And this is a problem that many people have when they get married. And so I'm warning you, if you're not married ahead of time, marriage is going to require sacrificial commitment. To leave your father and mother is to move your spouse to a position of commitment that exceeds your previous commitments and takes you out of your comfort zones. You suddenly say, this is my priority. Now, people don't realize that when they get married. What they think is, all right, before I get married, I, want, I had all these plans for my life, and now when I get married, I'll have all of these plans for my life, plus I'll have somebody to help me accomplish them. No, 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 this is not the way it works. You make a priority that your spouse comes before your work. And there is, there is confusion today because some people think that my work is more important than my spouse. And, and unfortunately, homes now have kids that are being raised by television because both spouses refuse to give up their work for the sake of their family. Latchkey kids. They come home, they open the door, they sit in front of the television because there isn't a family member at home because work is more important than family. There are people 
who say, well, I'm in ministry, and I'm, I'm speaking personally here. I'm in ministry, and ministry is more important than anything else. If she's going to marry me, she's marrying somebody who's in ministry, and my ministry is more important than anything else. And let me tell you, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that when you get married, you have another commitment. You read it for yourself and Paul. You have another commitment. You, you read Spirit of Prophecy. Your family is your first ministry. Hey, it's tough. Those of you involved in ministry, this is tough, tough talking. But this is what the Bible says. You will leave your previous commitments, step out of your comfort zone, and your number one commitment, besides God, becomes your spouse, becomes your family. Tough doing, tough doing. There is a legitimate jealousy that the Bible speaks about. Webster's Dictionary defines jealousy as intolerant of rivalry or unfaithfulness. There is a legitimate jealousy that we need to have when you're entering into marriage. Yes, jealousy can be destructive. I understand that. You know, the wrong kind of jealousy, selfish jealousy is destructive. But even God has a jealousy. Look it up for yourselves. Exodus 34 verse 14. God is a jealous God. Now, if jealousy was essentially sinful, then God couldn't say that. So what kind of jealousy should be permitted in a marriage? A righteous jealousy that says, I refuse to let our family become second best. And when I deal with married couples, and I, and I do a, a certain amount of counseling in my position, I have found that many couples have let go of the priority of their marriage. And so they come to me and they say things like, you know, it's just not the same anymore. Um, I, I, I kind of feel like we're just in this functional relationship. And she's saying things like, we never have time to talk anymore. He's saying things like, we never get to do anything. It's just kids and family and finances and, and doing all of these things to keep our family running. But we don't seem to be a priority in each other's lives. Don't let your marriage turn into that. And I'm warning you now, because when you're dating, it's easy. It's easy when you're dating, you know, it's all so sweet. Oh, what, what would you like? Can I help you in any way? Yes, oh, I, we, will, we will drive across country. We will fly between continents. That's what my wife and I did for the sake of our marriage. We will do anything for the sake of our marriage. But let me tell you, it was hard when I was flying here and I had a first class seat. And I had to get up from my first class seat and go back to coach with our three kids and tell my wife, yeah, honey, you go sit in first class where they serve you food and drinks and, and little hot cloths to clean your hands with. And, and I'll sit in the back next to the bathroom. <laughs> With my three kids climbing all over me because we're one seat short. I'll do that, honey, because you're my number one priority. <laughs> but you've got to do it, right? Because when you're married, if you, don't, if you don't keep up the affections that began when you were dating, your marriage will never last. That's what it says. That's what Ellen White recommends that you read in the Adventist home. You don't want to turn your dating into a bad marriage. Uh, so we need to make it a priority. And so there are subtle temptations. He works all the time, and when he gets home, he's tired and just wants to rest. And when he does get time off, he's doing something with his buddies. You can guess that in that marriage, it's not the number one priority. She doesn't even know when I'm home. She's so busy with the kids in the house that any, anything I want to, anytime I want to get romantic or have her do something with me, she's worn out. He, she is always on the computer. There are these distractions that come in that prevent marriage from being the number one 
priority. We need to have an essentially unselfish motive when we come into marriage, a willingness to let go, to relinquish those things that stand in the way of our marriage. And if you are concerned with the pursuit of happiness, if your goal of, is happiness, your method of achieving it will be selfish. It will be selfishness. It will be manipulation. So ironically, the people who find happiness in marriage are the ones who are not looking for it. Those who find happiness in marriage are the ones who have a goal of holiness. And the method of achieving it is sanctification. God, help me to be the person I need to be. Help me to swallow my pride. Help me to make this other person a priority. I will not look for my own needs, but I will look after the needs of others. You know which verse I'm referring to. I will not look for myself, but I'll look for the other person. Because instead, if your goal is happiness, then your contentment will rise or fall on your spouse's behavior. You know what? She didn't do this for me, so now I'm unhappy happy. I, I hate, hate it when people say, you made me angry. I got angry because I was essentially selfish and you didn't do what I wanted. Hello? When your spouse does not please you, you will seek to manipulate him or her. You will swing from apathy to resentment, anger, disillusionment, or depression because your goal is happiness and is not to become like the image of Christ. We need to change our goal in marriage. You may find yourself thinking if only he or she would do this or that, then I would be happy. But your happiness is not based on what other people do. It is based on what God has already done for you. Can you say amen? The goal of marriage, when you have made Christ number one and you have made your spouse number one, you will find that you are released from your selfish desires. And instead of approaching conflict self-protectively, you will be able to be vulnerable and open yourself up to the other person because they have become a priority and God has given you the ability to love them with holiness instead of with the goal of happiness. If your goal is holiness, you will find that you rely on Christ as the rock-solid foundation of your happiness and self-worth. You will approach conflicts with a primary desire not to be ministered unto, but to do what? To minister. This is how Christ was. You will respond to conflicts lovingly and respectfully, whether or not you feel loved or respected. Because you will have that inner ability that Christ has given you. You will bring to your home an atmosphere of heaven. And we know that marriage is meant to be a taste of heaven on earth. Second law, the law of pursuit. Now, I want you to notice the word cleave because we often misunderstand this word. The word cleave, you are to leave and then you are to cleave. But the word cleave does not mean to cut or to separate, but rather to pursue with great energy and to cling to something zealously. You know, it's not like today we cleave food. No, no, that's not what it's about. Cleaving means to be in pursuit. Now, let me, I know some of you are maybe overzealous in your pursuit of someone who's not yet your spouse. But once you are married, <laughs> you need to continue that same pursuit. You know, uh, women often joke with me, you know, um, I, I chased my, you know, I, I, my husband was the one who chased after me. But it was because I had already chased after him. I just knew how to get him to run after me too. <laughs> And so there is a secret of staying in love. That same pursuit by which you engage in dating will need to be the same pursuit by which you engage in marriage. Can you say amen? So there is a secret of staying in love. It's called W-O-R-K. What is that? Work. 
And some people think, once I get married, it'll be wonderful, and everything will go well, and I'll be so happy. Where did they get that idea from? Hollywood. You know, because the movie always ends with them, with them kissing each other at the altar and having a great time, and then the nice music plays. They don't show you what happens next. But fortunately, we're able to read the tabloids, and we know what happens next. <laughs> and it's not happily ever after. For the rest of your life, you must work every day at your marriage. This is according to Marriage on the Rock, a marriage book. You must work every day at your marriage for it to be rewarding and healthy. When you stop working at it, it will stop working for you. You get the point? Marriage takes work. It takes unselfishness. And I remember, you know, initially we were just in this euphoria. Our honeymoon lasted like a year. I mean, it was just wonderful. We were doing ministry together. Where we struggled was when we had kids. I'll be honest. You know, it was because kids come in and people joke with you, your life will never be the same. And we would go, we know, we know, but we didn't. <laughs> when kids came along, suddenly we had this 24-7 responsibility. And I would get home tired, and Nicole would be tired after looking after the ki kids or kids all day. And uh, we get together, we're both tired and exhausted, and what are we expecting? that the other person will minister to our needs. You know, I had this little 1950s picture in my mind. Oh, come on in. The kids are all nicely bathed with little bows in their hair. Come on in. Have a seat. Can I get you something to drink? You know, just sit down here. Read your Bible. I'll just take the kids into the room and, and play with them. And you don't need to worry about it. So here's the 1950s version of what's going to happen in marriage. And you should read our love letters to each other. I mean, they're so soft. We're going to sit in front of the fireplace and read to each other. I mean, great stuff. But you don't do that when you have kids. You know, it's like, don't get near the fire. Stay away from there. You know, it's not exactly this romantic picture. So instead, I get home. I'm tired. She's tired. You know, and we're both looking. And she, she's like, you know, I arrive home expecting to be ministered unto. And she, she's right. She says, if I don't get out of this house right now, I'm going to be running down the street naked, naked screaming. So you decide. Look after the kids, and I'll be sane, or let me look after the kids, and I'm not responsible for what happens next. Like, honey, I'll take the kids. So she goes for a walk. She comes back fine. But we need to minister to each other, and marriage takes work. And so you can't go into it expecting it to be, you know, honey and roses when, when you have to recognize you have to confront your selfishness. Revelation 2 verse 5 tells us how you're going to protect a relationship that is no longer working. Here's what you have to do. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember from where you have fallen. In other words, if your relationship is not working, try to recapture that first love experience. Remember what you used to do at first. What made a marriage work at first? I mean a dating relationship. What made it work at first? You were caring for each other. You were, you were buying gifts and spending time with each other and calling each other up every day and text, messi text messaging to each other. I just wanted to say how much you mean in my life. Then you get married and you forget all of that. So remember what you used to do at first. Then secondly, it says repent. So if you have a relationship that's not working, it means you're going to have to repent. What does repent mean? It literally means to do a U-turn. Admit where you went wrong and make an adjustment. If you can't fix something by doing exactly what you did before. Amen? 
So I'm, I'm telling you this now because you better write these down and come back to it in five years. All right, number three, do the works you did at first. And this is kind of connected with the other two. If you really want to make it work, go back to what made that dating relationship work. Invest time and energy into your relationship like you used to. Change your actions, and this is really important. If you're in a marriage that right now is not working the way it should be, change your actions and your heart will follow. And this is incredible. I've been with, with two people sitting down, and I believe God can make a marriage work between any two committed people because, because he'll blend the two together. I've had two people sitting down saying, we do not love each other. And I say, all right, I want you to act loving. And they act loving, and it's amazing. If the two are committed, the love will follow. So, first law was the law of? Not yet. Priorities. Second law was the law of? Pursuit. The third law is the law of possession. It says you're going to leave your father and mother. You're going to cleave unto your spouse. And then the law of possession, and they shall become one flesh. Now, there is a challenge because people do not really want to give themselves. So this is what the Bible recommends from the ESV, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Now, I'm, I'm trying to speak in a way, thank you. I'm trying to speak in a way that will help you to understand what what God intends for marriage. When two people unite, they are willing to give up their independent possession. Are you listening to me? Their independent possession of themselves. He is intending to make a unity of the two. Remember when they created in the beginning? God took from Adam flesh and bones. And now when He brings them back together, He says, look, you two are going to be one body. That's why you can't have sexuality outside of marriage. Can I have a witness? <laughs> You can have sex outside of marriage. Why? Because the Bible says when you have sex outside of marriage, you are combining two and they become one. So God's plan is that this happens when? Come on now. In marriage. And that in marriage, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But in this world today, what we've done is we try to have as much sexuality outside of marriage as we can. And we need to change the order of things. And so as a result, when people get into marriage, there is a holding back of, of themselves. They don't want to give themselves over to the other person fully. Well, I just can't trust the other person. Well, you better figure out before you get married whether you can trust that person or not. Amen? Because when you get into marriage, you need a 100% trust of that other person. So you better figure it out beforehand. So I have people going, well, I didn't really trust him before we got married because he had kind of been messing around. But I knew that once we got married, that would all change. Wrong. Do not take this exit. <laughs> you know, you are on the wrong path. When you get married, you need to have a fundamental trust. But then some people who are married say, but I don't have that trust right now. Well, then you better start giving yourself to the other person and developing that trust. Are you planning for your wife, husband, or future spouse to have full possession of sex, money, friendships, time, feelings, and emotions? Now, some people say, what do you mean full possession? Does that mean I'm a doormat? No. Remember, this is a blending together of two different identities. Amen? 
blending together of two different identities. So you're going to bring them together, but you are willing to share these things with the other person. I don't like saying, I have my bank account and she has her bank account. There's a fundamental problem in trust when that kind of thing takes place. When, uh, when say, well, you know, and I recognize people need their own friendships. But when my wife says to me, I don't like the way that girl relates to you. I don't go, you know, that's my friend. You don't mess with my friendships. No, I go, you know, you may be seeing something I don't see, and whether I agree or not, I leave that friendship behind. Or I reestablish that friendship. Because I recognize she sees something that I don't. And so we are willing to make these kinds of commitments because of the law of possession. Being one flesh means that you enter into a state of intimate union in all areas of your life. Are you ready to make that commitment when you get married? If you're not, you better not get married. Because that's what it requires. The principle of oneness is unconditional, affectionate, and intimate devotion to each other that encourages mutual growth into the image of God. And that means a foundation of trust. I am willing to give you all of myself. So you can critique me, even though it's hard. You can say, you know what, you're not being like God right now. You're not being like Christ right now. And I have to say, all right, honey, I've got to listen to that because I've given my body to you. I've given my time, my energy, my money to you. We are now one. You have the ability to help direct me to become more like the image of God. And I can do the same for her. And let me tell you, this is tough. Possession is a result of surrender. And uh, you can see that, uh, you know, there are books that are being published about this, you know, time to surrender. But really the idea of surrender is Luke 14, verse 33. Laying down your life so that the other person can enter in and take full possession. Now, I'm not saying that you have to give up your identity. I'm not saying you become a doormat. But true intimacy is created when two people so intertwine their lives with one another that you really can't tell when one begins and the other one ends. They are blending themselves together. In South Africa, we had... We had uh, something called poikikos. It was, a, it was a stew pot. It was an actual pot with three legs, metal cast iron pot. And we used to put you know, vegetables and rice and all kinds of stew things into, into the stew pot. And you'd mix it together. And the great thing about it is that you would still have all of the different kinds of vegetables and beans and rice and everything else. They, the individual entities would be there, but when you blended them together, you would have individual entities but a unique blended taste. You know what I'm talking about? So that's what we need to lay down our lives to be able to say, look, I am willing to lay down my life for the sake of the other person. Final law, the law of purity. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not what? Ashamed. What does it mean to be unashamed? God's ideal is unhindered intimacy without shame. What do you think creates shame in marriage? Sin. Good answer. Sin creates shame. Marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. But is it undefiled today? As soon as you have sinned, with sin there's an initial euphoria followed by guilt, shame, hiding, and blame. These effectively destroy intimacy. So the law of purity says we have to get rid of sin. And what is the number one sin that I find entering into marriages today? And it's parasites that have come in particularly through the internet. Can I speak directly now? We need to deal with the sin that is going to destroy marriage. I had a, a, a family that were doing some marriage counseling with me, and the man had just had an affair. And I said, what went wrong? He said, for years I've been struggling with pornography. I said, Where did, when did it begin? He said, before I got married. 
And I thought once I got married, the pornography would disappear. And instead, that parasite continued to live on in my life. And he says, I don't know what to do. And eventually it led to my entering an adulterous relationship. Please, can you help me? And we had to root out that parasite. And praise God that marriage is restored today. We need to get rid of the parasites. Sin affects every area of your life, including your spouse. You can say, well, this is just my sin. It's just internal. It won't affect the other person. What we need to do is admit our sin and trust God's plan for purity. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need to admit our sin and trust God's plan for purity. He will cleanse us. Then we need to pray for each other. We need groups of young people gathering together, praying that God will help young people to be able to overcome the sin that has crept into our lives. We need to have accountability. And if you're married, you need to do this with your spouse. You need to have other people outside of your uh, your marriage even, who can help hold you accountable, who can pray for you. Because we need to confront this because if we don't, God's plan for marriage will never be accomplished. Can you say amen? amen. God, give us grace. God's plan for your life, holiness and purity, will result in true and unbounded intimacy without shame. God, give us the ability to do this. We need the law of priority. Our spouse, our family will be number one after God. We need the law of pursuit to follow after our spouse with everything that is inside of us, to run after her or him. We need the law of possession to be able to share freely and fully with each other. And then we need the law of purity that God will give us the ability to be pure and holy, to become more and more like him so that together as a marriage, we will have unhindered intimacy. May God help each one of you to experience that kind of marriage. I, I want to make an appeal as we end here. I want to make an appeal. Whether you're married or unmarried, are you willing to accept God's plan for your marriage or your future marriage? If that's your desire, won't you stand with me? Stand with me. And that's kind of a generic appeal. But I want you to make that commitment in your heart. And so even as we pray, if you're saying, God, I want to have these four laws in my life. I want to have your holiness in my life. If that's your desire, then as we pray, if you're praying for God's holiness, maybe something has touched you here, then just raise your hand while we're praying, while every eye is closed. Let's pray together. Father God, we are in your presence. A presence that inspires holiness. Forgive us for our selfish desires to minister to our own needs. We believe you want us to be happy, but only by making us holy. And Lord, what is holiness after all? But to be filled with your presence. So now, Lord, I'm, I'm asking those in the audience who, who have something that they need to give up, who have something that's been holding them back from reaching your ideal, to just raise their hands, to raise their hands and say, God, I want your purity. I want your holiness in my life. I want to be made in your image. Oh, Father, you've seen the hands. We know that if we confess our sins, you are faithful, not only to forgive us of our sins, but to cleanse us. May that become a reality. In Jesus' name, amen.